0: Trill, 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 trill spill, trill spill, trill 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 Trill, trill Trill, trill spill, trill spill, trill trill, trill, trill trill, trill trill, trill trill, spill, Trill, 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 spill, trill, trill, spill, trill, 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 spill, trill, spill, trill, spill. With will.
1: yo 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 we back live and full effect well not really live i'm live you ain't but uh thanks for tuning in It's another episode of trill Spill with will i'm will and y'all are the shit let me tell y'all before i get into anything let me tell y'all how good y'all be to me we're at like 90 listens a month now and it ain't me and i appreciate y'all i don't know how y'all do it i don't know why y'all do it but as long as y'all listen i'm gonna keep on doing it for y'all so um Thank you for the progress and the accomplishment. Make sure you're checking out the 7:30 podcast, Turtle Doves Tea Party, Culture Marauders, Crib Convo's, Gangster Gumbo. Oh man, just listen radio. Oh man, it's so many, so many good podcasts out there that I know people are creating and show running. But um, this episode is different. I think we're going to stick with just the writer's block because I wanted to do a specific episode, but plans fell through, unfortunately, still scheduled to do it. We just rescheduled it. So all those things that I wanted to get into uh, via my Instagram posts and things of that nature, we're going to have to wait a little second. That's all. That's all. Just a small inconvenience. But it's still a good thing Because this uh, book It's not a saddle I really don't even know Which one I'm going to do yet I'm kind of just filling it out You know how I am i I'm, I'm, You know all my stuff like that But yeah um, With all that said man Let me get out y'all here man Y'all go ahead and enjoy this episode And we'll see what happens We'll just see what happens It's Trio Spiel
2: the soul man told me poetry's hereditary, told me he heard my music back in February, looked into my eyes, told me that I'll be legendary, hip hop's calling for an answer, I'm the secretary told me very clearly keep killing them your flows fresh to death so I'm dying to see the cemetery forgot his name but he left me with a saying best reason for dreams is that a reason's never necessary I bury all of these seeds inside my cranium looking at mankind like I'm watching some Wrestlemania tell me what's going on ecology them all the songs and all the poems that I've been writing coincide all along I think our vision was the same. Take the stain off your soul and paint a picture you can hang. Change. Stop running from all your thunderstorms. Life's about learning how to dance in the rain. People smile when they see them. Frown at the speakers if the B-sides wall I'm Jack Ruby on the feature. Killing. Somebody open up the ceiling. I'm climbing up out of the box and conspiring with some pilgrims. They told me to bring life back to music sword that's invisible till you use it like you can't call anyone honest until they prove it hard to miss something you loving until you lose it basics sipping newcastle in the fog if they ask i wonder to go see a man about a dog this rap game flawed it's like i'm in a room full of afros and i'm the only nigga going bald i'm a standout
1: Ooh. There you are. There you are again. I see you. Hello. Hello. Welcome to another installment of the Writer's Block, where we dibble and dabble into different books, different, different texts of black authors, black literature, everything black. I don't know about you, but when I read, I feel lit. <laughs> yes, as in literature. Yes, 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 yes,
0: yes. I don't know exactly which book, but
1: I believe. I believe William is getting ready to read from the book called Never Caught the Washington's relentless pursuit of their runaway slave owner judge written by the beautiful black Erica Armstrong Dunbar yes 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 professor of beard beard professor of history at Rutgers University (laughs) but yes without further ado here's Will with some more quips and quotes From Never Caught to Loo, yo, 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 what's going on, y'all? Yeah, uh, he was right. I'm gonna stick with Never Caught. It's the uh, it's, it's actually called Never Caught the Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave on a Judge, and it's written by Rutgers Professor Erica Armstrong Dunbar, and uh. I'm going to read chapter two. I don't like to read the beginning of books because it's like a movie. You have to get into it. It's the setup and it's real slow. But I think this is the perfect chapter for this. So let's get into it. Chapter two. Chapter two. New York bound. On Christmas Eve, 1783, George Washington returned to his family and beloved Mount Vernon. A very changed man. For eight and a half years, Washington had led his countrymen as commander of the Continental Army, a poorly outfitted and undertrained band of men who took on the Herculean fight that many believed would end in failure. It had been a terrible war that lasted far longer than anyone had ever predicted. There were never enough shoes, blankets, or shirts for the men who enlisted, even gunpowder was hard to come by. General Washington held the lives of more than 100,000 men in his hands. Men who had agreed to bear arms in the new Continental Army. Men who risked their limbs and lives in order to create a new country. More than 30,000 American soldiers perished in that war. Many from direct combat, and others from slow moving disease and infection that ravaged makeshift infirmaries and camp hospitals. Unknown numbers of men died in most dreadful ways, accidentally shot by comrades, crushed by old and unstable heavy wagons, falls from horses, and accidental drowning. Simply unable to live with the violence of war, some men took their own lives, leaving wives and children to face poverty and starvation. The general was a lucky man he would return home without the visible markers of war that thousands of his countrymen carried to their graves. Even though he had escaped the ailments that plagued his soldiers, the amputation of legs, blindness, and grotesque facial disfigurement from musket fire, his health was far more stable. Now in his 50s, he had aged considerably in the 18 months before his return home to mount vernon washington witnessed the collapse of the mighty british army after the surprising victory at yorktown earnest negotiations began in paris resulting in a signed peace treaty and the evacuation of british troops washington left his post in new york and headed to annapolis where he would resign as commander of the continental army He had been home to visit only one time during the Revolution, and he wanted desperately to return to the life he once enjoyed. He missed his wife and longed for the privacy that his estate offered. Having completed his duties, the general looked forward to a restful Christmas holiday with his family and friends and returned to Virginia with a sense of great accomplishment for doing what most had imagined impossible. He had won the Revolution but very few Americans had much faith in the new nation, including Washington. The United States of America was fragile. Its infrastructure was anything but secure as the former colonies took their time forming a more cohesive country. Making matters worse, the new nation was on the brink of financial collapse. Depending upon foreign loans, America was broke his return to civilian life at Mount Vernon was brief Washington could not remove himself from the politics and the concerns of the new nation even when he tried when invited to serve on Virginia's delegation to the constitutional convention Washington declined it would take months for friends and political acquaintances to convince the retired general that he must attend the convention in Philadelphia a reluctant Yet duty-bound Washington was unanimously elected as the convention's president where the new nation's constitution was created, but no one knew if it would work. Washington left Philadelphia and returned to Mount Vernon feeling trapped. He avoided conversation about the possibility of becoming the first president of the United States, dodging questions about his intentions and denying a desire to lead the new nation. But once the Congress set the timetable for the presidential election, Washington had to make his feelings known presidential electors were to be chosen in January of 1789 and an election would quickly follow Washington sent his trusted secretary Tobias Lear to New York to establish and secure good housing in the city that would become the nation's first capital with considerable pressure and reassurance from friends and politicians Washington had made up his mind If elected the first president of the United States he would accept the position on April 14th 1789 Charles Thompson secretary of the Congress arrived on horseback at Mount Vernon it was Thompson's responsibility to inform the general that he had been unanimously elected to serve as president capturing all 69 electoral votes Thompson read aloud a letter penned by senator john langdon of new hampshire president pro tempore of the senate sir i have the honor to transmit to your excellency the information of your unanimous election to the office of the president of the united states of america suffer me sir to indulge the hope that so auspicious a mark of public confidence will meet your approbation and be considered a sure pledge of the affection and support you are to expect from a free and enlightened people. For Washington, the letter confirmed that his life would never again be the same, and it set into motion a chain of events that irrevocably altered the lives of George and Martha Washington, the president-elect prepared to leave New York quickly, but not before borrowing 600 pounds from Captain Richard Conway. Just like the new nation, Washington was cash strapped. Poor crop harvests and delinquent taxes had placed the soon to be leader of the new nation in dire straits. He would need to borrow money at 6% interest to keep Mount Vernon afloat and to finance his trip to New York. All of this weighed heavy on the president elect's mind as he wrote, I am inclined to do what I never expected to be reduced to the necessity of doing. That is, to borrow money upon interest. Concerned about his failing plantation, unhappy about a northern relocation, and uncertain about the fragile new nation, Washington left for New York, the seat of the nation's capital, with a great deal on his mind. But he was not the only one with concerns about leaving Mount Vernon. There were others who would travel with the president and his family, people who had no choice in the matter. Seven slaves would accompany the Washingtons to New York, including a 16-year-old Ona judge. The fear of the unknown, the separation from loved ones, and the forced relocation must have felt apocalyptic from the bondmen and bondwomen who would travel to New York. Not that the cares and concerns of Mount Vernon slaves entered into the mind of the new president. Eager to keep the new nation running, Washington left for New York on April 16th, leaving a tremendous amount of the relocation work in the capable hands of Martha Washington, who would join him later. Prior to his departure, the president selected an acting master and mistress for the Mount Vernon estate, George Augustine Washington, The eldest son of the president's brother, Charles, was already living at Mount Vernon, serving as a manager, and was deemed the appropriate choice to fill his uncle's shoes. His wife, Fanny Bassett, the daughter of Martha Washington's sister, would look after all things connected to the running of the house and would remain in close contact with George and Martha Washington via the post. Fear, regret, and concern spilled onto the pages of the president's diary. He wrote of his departure from Mount Vernon, not in the fashion of a famed general ready for new challenges, but as a man who was extremely tentative. About 10 o'clock I bade adieu to Mount Vernon, to private life and to domestic felicity, and with a mind oppressed with more anxious and painful sensations than I have words to express. He doubted himself and the enterprise he had already accepted. Washington explained that he had, quote unquote, the best dispositions to render service to my country in obedience to its call, but with less hope of answering its expectations, he wrote. Washington's journey North took him through Philadelphia where nearly 20,000 men and women lined the streets to greet their new president. The crowds could not compensate for the grueling nature of the trip. The muddy roads and constant festivities slowed the pace of travel. By the time Washington arrived in New York, he wanted nothing more than to enter the city as inconspicuously as possible and to begin his work leading a new nation. Washington wrote to New York Governor George Clinton, stating, I can assure you, with the utmost sincerity that no reception can be so congenial to my feelings as a quiet entry devoid of ceremony. Although the governor offered the president lodging in his private home until a residence was secured for the new first family, a more modern term not used in the 18th century, Washington declined the offer stating that it was simply too much of an imposition. The president planned To take higher lodgings or rooms in a tavern until the details of the Washington's new home were settled. Just one week before his arrival the Congress leased a home for the president at 3 Cherry Street located in what was then the northeastern section of the city very near the present-day Brooklyn Bridge. Washington began the work of leading the new nation in a city that was very different from his Mount Vernon home. By the late 1780s, New York was the second largest city in America with a population of about 30,000 people and it was characteristically American. The city displayed signs of opulence and wealth all while maintaining a parochial nature that allowed for great diversity within its public spaces. People from all walks of life found themselves conducting business on those cobblestone streets. Men, women. White, black, enslaved, and free all resided within the city limits, adding richness to a bustling commercial port city. The streets of New York could be adventurous and filled with opportunity, but they could also be rough terrain to navigate. On April 30, 1789, George Washington took the oath of office and issued an inaugural address from the balcony of New York's Federal Hall. Notably absent from the ceremony was his wife while the first lady had traveled to see her husband during the American Revolution as he led the colonists in battle against the British she wanted nothing more than to stay put and resented her husband's call to public service that was taking them away from their Virginia home for his part though he has spent a great deal of time separated from his wife over the course of the previous decade it was not his preference. The new president missed having his wife by his side and began to wonder just how long it would take for Mrs. Washington to arrive in New York. She was certainly taking her time. Rather than immediately traveling to New York, she remained at Mount Vernon, attempting to come to grips with the path of her new life, one that would keep her away from her Virginia home for many years. Unsettled and displeased about the move to the nation's capital, she expressed her discontent to her closest confidants and stalled for time. Even the president's trusted secretary got involved. On May 3rd, Tobias Lear wrote to George Augustine describing the new home on Cherry Street and offering bits of information that might entice Mrs. Washington to hurry along in her journey north. Lear wrote that they had hired... Black Sam as steward and superintendent of the kitchen and a very excellent fellow, he is in the latter department. Lear knew that the first lady enjoyed seafood and so he reported on the culinary wonders performed by the head chef hoping that it would hasten her advancing towards New York. The president's secretary made it clear that everyone was awaiting the arrival of the first lady. He wrote for we are extremely desirous of seeing her here. And convincing Martha Washington that there was much to look forward to, he had his work cut out for him. I was wondering if I could holler at y'all for a little bit. Just for a little bit. Turn the lights on. You might wonder why. Let me get that light. Nigga talk so much. Turn up. It's cause I love y'all. I really do. Just be thinking about it when I do a lot of this shit that I shouldn't do. Say a lot of the shit I shouldn't say. i that's good for y'all. Self explanatory, I should have recalled uh, all this uh, He probably uh, breaking down the Constitution. Uh, using a nigga to do it. Hmm. And y'all niggas still sleep, so. Uh, yeah. Kim trails in poverty. Eyes on God and my daughter, but a nigga can't keep the devil up all from me. Darkness became a part of me. Every day I lose a part of me. Ain't a part of me. Ought to be further as a father, but I'm not, and it bothers me. But. Honestly, let me tell you what really startled me, undoubtedly, it's about what shit's about to be, globalized one world economy, nigga use a fool if it don't feel bamboozled, by this conglomerate, this nigga Obama bombing shit, don't nobody got no time for this, shit, put on the shoe and if it fits, you see shit for what it really is, sick to your stomach and it's got you pissed, both fists, clenched. shit. Nigga, this is America. disagreeing you resist? Quickly label a terrorist? The slaves at Mount Vernon knew all too well about the displeasure of their mistress and had to add that to their list of concerns. Owner judge, in particular, one of the favored house slaves responsible for tending to her mistress's needs, both emotional and physical, had to balance the first lady's deep sadness resentment and frustration with her own fears about the move the young owner judge was far from an experienced traveler the teenager knew only Mount Vernon and its surroundings and had never traveled far from a family and loved ones for Judge, the move must have been similar to the dreaded auction. Although she was not to be sold to a different owner, she was forced to leave her family for an unfamiliar destination hundreds of miles away. Judge would have no choice but to stifle the terror she felt and go on about the work of preparing to move. Folding linens, packing Martha Washington's dresses and personal accessories, and helping with the grandchildren were the tasks at hand. And it wasn't her place to complain or question. Judge had to remain strong and steady, if not for herself, then for her mistress who appeared to be falling apart at the seams. Like Judge, Martha Washington had no choice about the move to New York. Her life was at the direction of her husband who was now the most powerful man in the country. Mrs. Washington and owner judge may have shared similar concerns, but of course only Martha Washington was allowed to express discontent and sorrow. Martha Washington was unhappy. And everyone knew it, including her frightened slave. The president's nephew, Robert Lewis, would also soon be made aware of it. When he arrived at the estate of May four, on May 14th, things were in disarray. Lewis, who served as Washington's secretary between 1789 and 1791, was chosen to escort his aunt and her grandchildren to New York, but was surprised and a bit concerned when he arrived to find a frenzied and hectic scene. Lewis wrote, everything appeared to be in confusion. The manifestation of Mrs. Washington's conflicting feelings. Robert Lewis described the departure, which finally took place on May 16, 1789, as an emotional moment for the slaves and the First Lady. After an early dinner and making all necessary arrangements in which we were greatly retarded, it brought us to three o'clock in the afternoon when we left Mount Vernon. The servants of the house and a number of the field negroes made their appearance. To take leave of their mistress, numbers of these poor wretches seemed greatly agitated, much affected. My aunt equally so. Betty, Ona Judge's mother, must have been one of those agitated slaves not only was she losing her 16 year old daughter but she was also losing her son austin who would serve as one of the washington's waiters austin's wife charlotte and their children would have joined in that same morning betty watched her children leave mount vernon a reminder of what little control slave mothers had over the lives of their children if she found any comfort that day it would be that her brother and sister were traveling together. Austin was older and male and could look out for his younger sister. Still, Betty knew that her relationship with her children would never be the same. The grieving mother was not the only slave to wrestle with the feeling of dread at the sight of her mistress's departure. Every slave on the Mount Vernon estate knew that the order of things was in transition with George and Martha Washington hundreds of miles away Their lives were now in the hands of George Augustine and the overseers. Would the slaves at Mount Vernon be treated decently? Would the nature of their work change? And if so, how? The certainty of life and the involuntary separation of family reminded every black person at Mount Vernon that the system of slavery rendered them powerless. Not everyone was disturbed with the plans of Northern living, however. Traveling North may have also stirred some feelings of hope or excitement in the minds of the slaves who were chosen to accompany the Washingtons. Freedom and opportunity were at play in many Northern states that boasted growing free Black populations. News about Northern emancipation reached the information-hungry slave communities of the South, often prompting slaves to risk everything and attempt to escape. The Commonwealths of Pennsylvania and Massachusetts had already loosened the shackles of slavery through gradual abolition laws, while New York struggled with such decisions. Just a year prior, in 1788, Connecticut and Massachusetts forbade its residents from participating in the slave trade, but New York enacted a new comprehensive slave law, one that kept all slaves currently held in bondage as slaves for the entirety of their lives. It is impossible to know how familiar the slaves at Mount Vernon were with the specifics of the changing laws of the North of one state mandate versus another's, but it is certain is that judge had witnessed the act of running away. The slaves at Mount Vernon who successfully escaped reminded the bond people who remained that there were alternatives to the dehumanizing experience of slavery. Freedom of course was risky and was never considered without great caution and planning. But perhaps a trip to New York would yield opportunities never imagined by the slaves who lived in Mount Vernon. Maybe life would be better in New York and perhaps they could find their way to freedom. As the slaves pondered what the move to New York might mean for them, they did so subtly. A slave could not appear to be too calculating or strategic, and no one wanted to spook the Washingtons, especially the very fragile Martha Washington. They were well aware that the practice of slavery was under attack in most of the northern states. They also knew that through New York's residents still clung to bound labor, public sentiment regarding African slavery was changing. Unwilling to even think about abandoning the use of black slaves, The President and the First Lady were careful in their selection of men and women who traveled with them from Mount Vernon. Their selections involved only those slaves who were seen as loyal and therefore less likely to attempt escape. Skills in the art of house service were also a necessity. William Lee, the President's body servant, elbowed his way to the front of the line of the bondmen who would travel north. He was Washington's number one slave, the valet who knew the president better than any other enslaved person at Mount Vernon. Born circa 1750, William Lee was a teenager when he was purchased by George Washington. Sold alongside three other slaves, Lee earned the position as butler in part because of his complexion. Believing that interracial slaves were more attractive and intelligent, Washington preferred to buy quote-unquote yellow-skinned men and women. Lee was offered fine clothing and learned the art of caring for his master from older, more seasoned house slaves. He would perfect his duty of dressing his master's hair and preparing his clothing. Washington's manservant also became known for his expertise in horseback riding, an activity much enjoyed by his master. The trusted bondman was noted as a Fearless horseman who was quote unquote sturdy and of great bone and muscle. Washington and Lee would ride together several times a week, forming the closest kind of relationship appropriate for master and slave. Once Washington announced that he would accept the position of president and move to New York, William Lee was determined to go with him. Lee had traveled north once before albeit to Philadelphia for the Continental Congress 15 years earlier, not New York. And good memories must have prompted him to want to return, for it was during his first Northern sojourn that Lee found both his voice and his love. While we know virtually nothing about Lee's first experience in the North, other than the fact that Washington attired him in new shoes and garments, we can surmise that the trip changed him. Prior to leaving Mount Vernon, members of George and Martha Washington's family often referred to Lee as Billy. Washington frequently listed him as my boy Billy in his account books. But Lee returned from this northern city with a proper name, one that he chose on his own. His master wrote that his enslaved valet began quote unquote calling himself William Lee. Presumably revolutionary rhetoric and the beginnings of black freedom in the North effectively giving him the impetus to move away from the nickname of Billy and to adopt the surname that directly tied him to the plantation on which he was born. Not only did William Lee name himself after that trip to Philadelphia, but in doing so, he openly connected himself to his former owner, whom he must have considered to be his biological father. However, it was his meeting and courtship with Margaret Thomas, a free black woman in Philadelphia that changed Lee's life. The couple requested that they be kept together and Margaret Thomas made the odd and dangerous decision to move south with her beloved. Although the marriages of enslaved people were not recognized by the law in Virginia, Washington supposedly granted their request that Thomas be allowed to travel to and live with Lee at Mount Vernon. What happens next is lost because there's no written evidence that Lee and Thomas lived together at Mount Vernon. Though as a free woman, she wouldn't have appeared in Washington's account book. It is possible that she either died or left the marriage. What's more probable is that Thomas changed her mind about exchanging what little stability she had in Philadelphia for dangerous uncertainty in Virginia. By leaving Philadelphia, Thomas would have walked into the mouth of the slave hungry South, placing her free status in serious jeopardy. In this instance, perhaps love was not a strong enough pool to compete with freedom. Lee's chance for love with a free woman and a future complete with free heirs never came to fruition still he was marked by this experience and he was keen indeed determined to travel to New York with his master Now. Lee's desperate wish to travel to New York was in danger because his health was failing. In April of 1785, Lee was injured during a surveying expedition and it says broke the pan of his knee. Reduced to hobbling around on crutches or a cane, Lee dealt with his constant pain through the consumption of alcohol and lots of it. Three years later, on a cold and snowy day in March, Lee was sent to fetch the mail from Alexandria. During his errand, the already disabled slave fell again, this time shattering the other knee. His body was broken and his usefulness was lost. Lee became somewhat of an invalid, unable to perform any task that required him to walk or move. In his late 30s, Lee's duties shifted to that of a shoemaker, a demotion. Fortunately, Washington felt a sense of closeness with his faithful slave and agreed to bring Lee to New York as a member of his team of slaves, even though he was unable to perform the duties of a respected valet. William Lee, therefore, began the journey to the nation's capital with the president-elect and his aides, Tobias Lear and David Humphreys. Hours away, From fulfilling his dream of living in another northern city, he experienced yet another setback. (laughs) He fell behind the president's entourage. Unable to keep up with the hectic pace of traveling, he was left in Philadelphia to see a doctor and to recuperate. He was fitted for braces and appeared in New York on June 22, 1789, more than two months after Washington. Also joining the first family would be two other slaves, known only as Giles and Paris. Similar to William Lee, Giles and Paris had traveled outside of the Virginia colony when they accompanied the president to the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Proving themselves reliable outside the rural limits of Virginia, they were to serve as the Washington's postillions, drivers for the president's horse-drawn carriages a duty that would require a quick study of the streets of New York. As illiterate slaves, these men would have to form fast friendships with New York coachmen, relying upon word of mouth and a circle of New York postilions to learn the geographical layout of the city. That wouldn't prove too difficult. For one, they were serving the decorated commander of the Revolutionary War, and they were fortunate to find other blacks performing the same duty. Black postillions and footmen were seen as symbols of wealth for the rural gentry in New York. The Washingtons could thus maintain their Virginia customs far from Mount Vernon and do it in style. The president was conscious of the appearance of his slaves, especially bondmen like Giles and Paris, who stood as symbols of urban wealth. He surveyed their grooming habits and attire, asking his secretary to purchase new clothing for them when their outfits became frayed or tattered. Deciding that the caps worn by Giles and Paris were unacceptable, Washington even wrote to Tobias Lear, I therefore request that you will have two handsome ones, caps made, with fuller and richer tassels at top than the old ones have. Giles and Paris needed to look good. Washington's image depended on it. Austin, owner's half brother, And Christopher Shields, the nephew of William Lee, were also to serve the Washingtons in New York as waiters and butlers. These men were undoubtedly accustomed to 18th century Southern protocol. And not only were they seen as reliable slaves, but they were presentable to a new northern social circle. They were most likely trained by the ailing William Lee, who knew the likes and dislikes of his master more than any other bondman. Lee would serve as Mount Vernon's transplanted institutional memory, the reminder of a slow and steady Virginia past and a hectic New York present. Christopher Shields was a dower slave during the Revolutionary era, probably around 1774. Similar to Austin, he belonged to the Park Custis heirs and was not counted as one of the Washington's personal slaves. Like Ona, he was young and had a familial connection that placed him among the most trusted of house slaves mount vernon historian mary thompson suggests that shields was one of the very few slaves who was literate on the mount vernon estate now this skill would most certainly be useful in the new capital city older than both shields and judge austin offered reliability as well as maturity The only Bond women who were set to travel to New York were Ona, Judge, and Maul, a 50-year-old seamstress. Judge and Maul would serve the first lady as housemaids and personal attendants. Judge would draw her mistress's bath, prepare her bed clothing, brush her hair, tend to her when she was ill, and travel with her throughout the city on social calls. Maul would be responsible for the grandchildren who lived with the Washingtons. Maul would wipe noses, calm anxious souls awakened by nightmares, and make certain that the Washington's grandchildren were well fed and well dressed. Ona would help Maul in whatever way she could above and beyond fulfilling Martha Washington's needs. The two women worked all day and every day under the careful watch of their mistress. The life of an enslaved domestic carried grueling and constant demands. Private time, time away from the mistress and master was all but fleeting.
2: Water. I said I don't know, he said reflection's not a lesson It's to try to understand when people gaze in your direction A confession by the tongue is overpowered by perception See, no one will ever believe a thing when you talk in dreams Until you live in it like inception. Came from the dirt, so the ground is my complexion Follow the message and leave a jag like Leftwich I asked him what you mean, he said dreams and material things Could be death Death wish, death wish. I can't sing, but y'all get it. Uh. Cause I done seen times harder than you think. nothing hit a drink, had to fill a milk carton with the water from the sink. No money in the bank. Man, I went a year where I couldn't put more than three dollars in the tank. Really humbled my attitude. I stay grounded, verifying my altitude. Even though I could brag about what I'ma do, I was raised that it's way better when it comes from you. A lot of rappers are the same now. Strip club, hundred dollars from a rain cloud. Since I'm trying to bring change to the game now, they probably wanna take aim and try to shoot my plane down. <laughs> that might be why I gotta fear flying. Man of faith, but I still gotta fear dying. I believe in the most high, throwing prayers to the sky, but I still got to feel for science. feel for
1: science. Mrs. Washington traveled a similar route to that of her husband, arriving first in Philadelphia, where she was to make a few social calls and take a short respite before traveling onward to New York to much fanfare. Judge watched as the cavalry and honor guard greeted them at the outskirts of the city, welcoming Mrs. Washington and her entourage to Philadelphia. While the first lady reacquainted herself with her old friend Mary Morris, wife of well-known financier Robert Morris, Judge tended to her mistress and started to acclimate herself to a new northern pace. They were still several days travel away from New York, but the time in Philadelphia marked an important transition. Philadelphia was Judge's first encounter with the North, this exhilarating place where enslaved and free blacks co-mingled. Inevitably, Judge was confused and excited by the examples of black freedom she witnessed, for it was unlike anything she had ever seen on Mount Vernon. With close to 44,000 residents living and working in the growing city, Philadelphia was teeming with people nearly 300 slaves still tethered to the institution of slavery called the city of brotherly love their home yet they were in the minority when judge arrived in the city in May of 1789 there were nearly five times as many or close to 1800 free blacks living within the city limits early anti-slavery literature distributed by Philadelphia publishers forced the city inhabitants to look at the institution of slavery through new eyes When Judge arrived in Philadelphia, the most well-known abolitionist broadside description of a slave ship had already made an appearance. The 18th century poster laid bare the brutality and inhumanity of African slavery, creating a visual supplement for all who were interested in the subject of the transatlantic slave trade. In the same month that owner Judge traveled to Philadelphia, printer Matthew Carey produced a broadside for the newly reorganized Pennsylvania Society for Promoting the Abolition of Slavery and for the Relief of Free Negroes Unlawfully Held in Bondage, later known as the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. Description of a slave ship documented how Africans were mercilessly packed into slave ships with no regard to space or hygiene, let alone humanity. The broadside buttressed the constant Quaker conversations about the evils of slavery. It also reminded Pennsylvanians about their decision to prepare for the end of slavery in the Commonwealth some of the most revered philadelphia statesmen joined that crusade to release men women and children from the grasp of perpetual bondage even former slaveholders such as benjamin franklin now franklin was not unlike many other white philadelphians and that it took him some time to accept and support the ending of african slavery yet Toward the end of the revolution, Franklin ceased his connection to human trafficking. He had held a handful of slaves, most of whom ran away or died while in his service. And in 1787, he became the president of Pennsylvania's Abolition Society. That same year, the year that Ona judge came to Philadelphia, Franklin penned several essays that supported national abolition. Martha Washington would make certain to avoid the likes of Franklin during her brief stay in Philadelphia. She had no interest in releasing the slaves at Mount Vernon who numbered in the hundreds. Instead, she would move quickly to join her husband in New York, shielding her slaves from this contagion of liberty. As Judge started to familiarize herself with northern life, expert astronomer, and African-American scientist Benjamin Banneker's predictions of a solar eclipse came true. Although the hybrid solar eclipse was not visible in the skies of North Africa Banneker foretold of the event much to the surprise of his white peers. In ancient times it was feared that the shadow of the sun signified either death or the end of an era and in many ways This was true for the bondmen and bondwomen who found themselves laying over in Philadelphia. On Sunday, May 24th, 1789, the moon sailed in front of the sun. The next day, the party from Mount Vernon left Philadelphia and headed for New York, marking the beginning of a new life for a young slave girl.
0: Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we meet again.
1: Did you enjoy yourselves? I enjoyed myself thoroughly. Thoroughly, I always do. And Will reads his quips and his quotes, those quotes and those quips. And I love this story. I, I've fallen in love with Ona Judge and her journey to freedom. I, I wonder why the Washingtons put so much stake in this young lady one would almost inquire was she the president's daughter that no one knew not even not even Martha herself who knows we don't know all we can do is read the book but yes that is all for for this installment of the Writer's Block. Thanks for stopping by. And I bid you adieu.
0: Toodles. Toodaloo. No, go on, get out of here. Get out of here right
1: now. Get out of here before I call the authorities. <laughs> yes, yes, I'll do it. Hope y'all enjoyed this episode. Um, definitely, definitely, definitely stay tuned because we are going to have that, that discussion about black men and black women. But for right now, before I get out y'all here, I want to talk about something that I'm sick of seeing. For the last few episodes, I've been stressing that humanity is key. Humanity is currency and I am not liking how I'm seeing people treat each other in these streets. Walking past people and they wave at you and you're not waving back, you looking them dead in the face but you ain't waving back to them. And I know these things happened before COVID, but now they mean a little bit more. That that if I walk by you and look at you in the face, smile and say how you doing? You better respond to me. I don't give a fuck about how how your day going. You don't have to give me no conversation, but you can act like you're a human being. Everybody ain't sick. Stop acting like everybody ain't sick. Nine times out of ten, you probably sick. Because y'all ain't getting tested. All y'all ain't got no COVID test. And some of y'all don't want to wear no mask. I'm not here to talk about that. What I am gonna talk about is how you're treating people. You can say hello when you walk past people. You can say hello when you see them in the store. You don't have to give nobody a dap. You don't have to hug them, but you can be cordial. Just because we're on a quarantine does not mean everybody is poisonous. You know what is poisonous? A trash ass attitude treating people like trash because you have been watching the news and you have been scared into thinking that everybody around you is sick. Everybody ain't out here living like that. I'm telling you, that is a quick and easy way to get cussed out. Dealing with a person like me. I'm mean, Let me say it in layman's terms. Fucking with a nigga like me better get you cussed out. I'm not going to walk past you and and you see me and, and before I hit, before we're even six feet away from each other and you look at me and you give me a head nod or you say hello, I'm going to acknowledge that. I'm still going to open the door for people. Y'all out here acting like straight assholes to people, man. And it's not everybody all the time but you gotta pay attention. You guys gotta pay attention, man. It's almost like the way men have to pay attention to how we look when we look at women. Think about that when you're out here dealing with humans on a day-to-day basis. People are tired, people are on edge, people are sick of the situation that's taking place, but, everybody still bleed, everybody still feel pain, everybody still got families, everybody is still human. So, so, no Rona, no Rona, that's weed, don't try me. But, Now that I've said that, let me say this. I am still, excuse me, proud of y'all. Cause it's not everybody. It's not everybody. I'm seeing people take real strides at getting better, self care, people are quitting cigarettes and people are starting businesses and people are just changing their lives altogether. Don't look at this COVID situation as a plague. And an excuse for you to sit on your ass and not do shit because when this shit is over and everybody then changed and moved and went on to a different transition and different phase in their life and you still stuck because you ain't do nothing all you did was complain and point people out and do all that shit and post on instagram you're gonna feel real shitty yeah you are And no one is gonna be out here babysitting people you can do whatever you want but when somebody cuts you the fuck out or slap you or punch you don't be quick throw up your inst- you get on instagram and put it on live or whatever think about how you treated that person or whatever you said to that person and how it triggered them maybe it was something as simple as you saying hey how you doing And even though we have on masks you can still fucking smile you can still see a smile in a person's eyes i don't know why i gotta tell you guys this you guys are grown stop being controlled by your fear man It's affecting how everything and everybody is being treated across the board. And we have to be smarter than this. They already manipulate and control us with everything. Do you guys want to control anything that happens with your lives? You don't have to be miserable right now, guys. To be honest, and I ain't no better than nobody. This is the most peace I've felt in years, these last seven months. And it ain't got nothing to do with money or relationship. It's got to do with me trying to get better and I'm accomplishing goals. I'm still checking off the things on the list. Guys, 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 you need the people around you. I don't care what the news is telling you. Yes, you still social distance, but you better remember that you in this shit together with other people. Nobody's an animal. Ain't none of y'all savages. Yeah, there's a lot of racial tension. White people, stop being on edge and trying to prove that you're not racist. Just say hello and keep it moving. Black people, stop acting like every white person is out to get you. I'm sick of seeing that shit. We got way bigger problems to deal with. Kanye has a mental health issue and he's trying to run for president. There's sex trafficking. Sex trafficking is off the meter right now. We don't know who's sick and who isn't sick. They can't give us real numbers. They're lying to us and manipulating us by fear. We still can say hello to each other. You still can act like a human being. Be decent, man. Don't be trash. I appreciate y'all, man. Um, that's it for this episode. I'm out of here. I appreciate y'all. I love y'all. Let's continue. Continue. It's an it's an everyday thing. I, I slip all the time. I make I, I, and, and doing this podcast makes it. Harder, but a little bit easier for me to change because I say these things and then I have to watch how I live too. I gotta watch what I say behind closed doors when I ain't around nobody and how I think and how I feel. That shit ain't, this shit ain't no, this ain't, ain't for the week. Everybody's going through a transition. Everybody's perception is changing of things. Nobody is special. None of you, none of you, none of you is special. But I will tell you this. You are unique. But the shared trait that everyone has right now is humanity. Treat each other like you know that. I love y'all. Keep your heads to the sky and out of your ass. Love on the babies. Protect the ladies. Hey, Y'all be great. I'm out.